think it was understanding that not everybody grows up in the same bubble as you. Where you get used to being in your world and you think that's the whole world. And learning that that is not the whole world and what worked for you in one environment isn't even going to resonate with people in another. When I turned up on the playground at the local school that I went to in Essex saying, I love cross country and maths. And people looked at me like, what, who are you? <laughs> I was like, that's just who I am. And I had come from a school that was very focused on those things to a school that just wasn't. They had other things that were priorities. And I had to think, all right, what do people do here that's fun? And it was completely different choices that I needed to make. So how, how did it feel when you were going through that? It was... I think it was sad is how I felt. I felt a little sad that it's not easy to be making friends on the playground. I, I had quite a bullying situation that I went into in the playground. And part of that was me. I mean, I just turned up not ready to look and see how do I connect with people. I just, this is who I am. Everyone should love me. I've arrived. No, and the reaction was, no, you need to prove yourself. Welcome to the She Leads Business Show, where I shine the spotlight on female owners of growing small and medium-sized businesses. You're in the right place if you want to ditch the stress and firefighting, stop working too many hours, despite having team members, and never compete on price again. I'm Una Doyle, founder of creativeflow.tv. I'm a speaker, business strategist, and impact coach. Business owners hire me to help them to build a business they could sell tomorrow, but they probably don't want to because it's highly profitable. It's fun to run because they and their team are in creative flow and they get to make a bigger impact on the world. In every episode, myself and my guests share the strategies, stories and wisdom to help you to achieve this too. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to She Leads Business. And today I am joined by Philippa Girling. Welcome, Philippa. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great to have you here. Now, tell people what it is that you do. Well, right now I am the CEO of Camp Chateau. It's a summer camp for women in the south of France. This is new for me. The rest of my career I've been in banking. Well, I'm really excited to dive into the journey of how did you get to where you are today? And we're going to talk about your vision for the future and also look to address your number one challenge in this business moving forward and see what we can do to address that and, and have you go away <laughs> with some uh, insights and actions that will help you to achieve that. OK, well, first, what I want to do is just find out a bit more about you, Philippa, and your journey. So where did your journey begin? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in England. I stayed in England until I was in my 20s. I moved to America. I moved back to England. I moved to Singapore. I moved back to England. And then I ended up settled in America in 1996. So I'm a sort of mid-Atlantic person. I grew up in Surrey and Essex, went to school in Norwich. So I'm curious about the going to school in Norwich because... My, I'm Irish, so my geography of the UK is okay, but not brilliant. <laughs> but it's, isn't that kind of a little bit slightly further away? Yes, well, that's the American in me, because here college is school. And so I went ah, to university in Norwich. That makes more sense that. now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it does. I went to university in Norwich, and then I also went to university at Rutgers in New Jersey. 
Fantastic. Okay. Let's go back a bit earlier than you being at college or university, depending on which continent you're on. And what was life like for you as a child? Well, I had a mixed childhood in that I grew up in Surrey until I was about 11. So I was quite posh, I think is where you said my accent was terribly, terribly posh. And then we moved to Essex, which is not posh. And so I would say that I went through a big assimilation that I had to do around age 11, where I went from one environment to a very different environment and needed to adjust to see how am I going to fit here. I actually loved both. I loved growing up in Essex in my teenage years. Uh, but it certainly, I think, made me, what I say to people is I was posh, but I could dance around my handbag. So <laughs> I had a little bit of both Surrey and Essex in me. Okay. And I mean, what, what was the biggest challenge in making that transition? I think it was understanding that not everybody grows up in the same bubble as you. You get used to being in your world and you think that's the whole world. And learning that that is not the whole world and what worked for you in one environment isn't even going to resonate with people in another. When I turned up on the playground at the local school that I went to in Essex saying, I love cross country and maths. And people looked at me like, what, who are you? <laughs> I was like, that's just who I am. And I had come from a school that was very focused on those things to a school that just wasn't. They had other things that were priorities. And I had to think, all right, what do people do here that's fun? And it was completely different choices that I needed to make. So how, how did it feel when you were going through that? It was, I think it was sad is how I felt. I felt a little sad that it's not easy to be making friends on the playground. I, I had quite a bullying situation that I went into in the playground. And part of that was me. I mean, I just turned up not ready to look and see how do I connect with people. I just, this is who I am. Everyone should love me. I've arrived. No, and the reaction was, no, you need to prove yourself. So I think that made me sad for a little while, but not for long because I worked out that the things that I really did love to do, there were other avenues I could take to do them. And so at the time, I talked my parents into letting me sit a local, the aptitude test at the time, which was the 11 plus. And uh, my parents were actually anti the 11 plus. So because it's not, you know, equitable enough, which is fair, but they allowed me to take it. I tested into a school that was a, you know, hour and a half trip for me once I went into secondary school. But I loved that school. I didn't mind the journey. I loved the school I went to. I was really incredibly happy at school. And what was the key distinction between the first school you went to and the one that was an hour and a half away that you loved? That it was okay to be hardworking. It was not really considered an okay trait in the school that I went into and it was considered absolutely fine and normal in the school that I went to. So different values? Different values entirely. Mm. Now I do think that it's not an indictment on the school that I went into, I just happened to go into a group that was tough. Interestingly at university years later I met someone who went with that same group of children all the way through secondary school and they said to me that was a nightmare year that the girls in that year in particular were just mean. 
<laughs> I was like, thank God I went somewhere else because I think it was just a really bad dynamic in that particular classroom. Sounds like a lucky escape. Well, I, I planned my escape. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. What's your favourite memory from your childhood? Oh, I have so many. I really enjoyed my childhood. I think one of my favourite memories from my childhood was I had a, two friends in primary school, twins, who I'm still in touch with. And they were the ones whose job it was to introduce me to the classroom when I first arrived in infant school. We became just best friends. And the best memories I have around seven or eight years old playing in their garden because they had what seemed to me like an enormous, enormous garden with a zip line in it. <laughs> this is in the middle of Weybridge in Surrey. They were a very unusual, interesting family. And they had this zip line from an oak tree that we used to play on. And that is really one of my happiest memories. Yeah, I'd love that too. Now I want a zip line yeah. in my back garden. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> and we actually live on a hill. Yeah, you've got me thinking now. There you go. <laughs> Not sure about the health and safety of it when I look back. I don't know. I don't know how often we were taking our lives in our hands, but you know, we had fun. So how high off the ground was the zip line? Well, in my memory, it was, you know, hundreds of feet. So probably it was 20 feet. I, I don't know. High enough. High enough to oh, do some damage. To really absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm rethinking the uh, the zip line in our back garden because because it's terraced and that it actually has uh, all slabs. So it's not like you have a grass Ooh. soft landing. So it's like, mm, that's a hard actually, landing. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> Well, I was a bit of a tree climber when I was younger, so I used to love scamp scampering up trees all the time. So this one was perfect. You had to climb up it and then you got to fly off it. Yeah, that, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Which parent are you most like? I'm curious. I am probably most like my dad, I would say. Uh, I look like my mum. So and in what way are you most like your dad? My dad is very problem-solving oriented. He's an engineer, and so he likes to analyze a problem, pull it to pieces, come up with a solution, and he gets an enormous amount of satisfaction from that, and I do too. I love a sticky problem. There's nothing... I actually love tangled Christmas tree lights. Most people think <laughs> that's crazy. I look at them and think, oh, challenge. And so I really enjoy solving a problem. My mother is a really amazing artist. I do not have an artistic bone in my body. I realize that what I get from my mom is creativity. I am creative, but I'm not artistic. And she really is. And quite a few of my children are. And so it's skipped a generation. And uh, we have artists in the family. I'm not one of them. It's interesting because I think a lot of people think if you're not artistic that you're not creative. So it's great that you recognize that you do have creativity. It just doesn't always show up in that way. Sometimes rather than being a painter or a writer, then, you know, you could be a problem solver. You can be strategic in your thinking. Right. I love to be creative and innovative. Mm. I'm terrible with a paintbrush. <laughs> So you, you mentioned so you've gone to this 
secondary school, this high school that you actually really enjoyed. And you then went to uh, college slash university in Norwich. Uh, so what happened then? Uh, well, I went to study law. Well, I say, first of all, uh, originally I didn't go to university. I thought, who needs to go to university? I'm just going to go get a job and earn a living and start my life. And I took a job going into London when I was about 18. And this was a long commute. It was from Colchester in, in Essex uh, all the way down to London. It took forever. It was miserable. I remember I had very uncomfortable high heel shoes I had to wear every day. I went to an office where everybody smoked in the office. And it was all, in my mind, old women who were probably in their 30s, old women chain smoking, doing data entry. So I decided, you know, this is how I'm going to make a living took me about two months to think I'm going to lose my mind. And so I signed up for some classes, which were because it was an insurance company. And I signed up to do some evening classes so I could get on and get promoted. And one of the classes was insurance law. And I really loved it. I really loved the law. So I applied for university, University of East Anglia. And at the end of that year, I left that job and I went to UEA and studied law. Fantastic. And what was your biggest challenge during that time when you were studying law? It was personal challenge during that time because my stepfather developed very serious illness. He had a brain tumor and that was in the middle of my studies. Mm. And so I needed to leave university, go home, really help take care of my mother and the family while my stepfather was going through serious surgery. And that really disrupted my education. I found that really hard. And I look back on it now and think, I don't even know how I survived that. <laughs> if that happened to me now, I think I would be floored by it. But I think when you're in your 20s, you've got a lot of resilience and I was able to bounce back and get through and get my degree, but it was a really tough time. I did love the subject. I absolutely loved studying law. What do you think was your biggest lesson from that whole situation? Well, I didn't end up being a lawyer what I learned was not just about how to handle being at university, but I also did not end up as a lawyer. And so there was a lot I learned around pursuing one path and ending up on another or having to deal with changing circumstances. And I think it was those years in the 80s at university where I realized plan B is always better than plan A. And quite often plan C is better still because plan A is what you think you should do the path that you forge for yourself. And then plan B is what you have to do when circumstances knock all of your plans for six. And often that allows you to be creative with, well, let's maybe I could do this other thing. And it often turns out to be something that stretches you more than plan A would. Plan C is the everything just changed again. Are you able to pivot and stay resilient? And then when you pursue that plan C, that's the one that tends to be the big success. That's really what I learned in those years. And it's really what I learned about going and taking that job in London. That's what I thought was my plan A. I quickly found myself on B and then C. I think that's a very powerful lesson because, you know, the journey from A to Z is never a straight line. It's always messy. <laughs> There's always right. changes. Life happens. And it's how we respond to life that actually allows us to succeed and to enjoy what what it is that we're doing so i think a very valuable lesson there philippa thank you did you transition into banking straight from university then was that your plan c 
Uh, no. So first of all, I was completely on the law track and I got the most fantastic job in New York working for a law firm on Wall Street. And I don't know if you ever watched L.A. Law back in the 80s. Anyone who's seen that show, this firm was exactly like L.A. Law. Handsome, young partners, billionaire clients, cool office. I mean, I was just blown away. Here I was, 22 years old in this incredible environment. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay in New York. I'm going to study for the New York bar. I'm going to become a New York lawyer. My father lived in America already. And some of my half brothers and sisters live in the States. And my first husband, who I had just married, is American. And so there I was settled in this amazing job. I got married as soon as we graduated university and gone to America. So I've been there probably four months. And one of the secretaries, as they were then, came up to me and she said, honey, you're pregnant. I said, no, I'm not. Oh, my God. Yes, I am. <laughs> I hadn't even noticed that I was pregnant. And so here I am in America, no health insurance because I've just arrived, three months pregnant. And I watched, I, it was that moment I was just going to lose the whole law career in my mind. The first few years, you can't have a small child. You just can't. It's really hard. You're going to be doing 80-hour weeks. So I had to face, this is not going to be my path. And that was hard. And so we came back from America, moved back to England. I found myself unemployed with a toddler in the West Midlands, which is where we ended up because that's where my husband's job was. And uh, by the time my daughter, my eldest daughter was about six months old, I was just like, okay, I've got to create something, a business. So I started my first business and it was helping Americans come to England on holiday. Here's all the things you don't know about England that you should know. I know Americans, I know England, let's put them all together. And this was the good old days when there was no databases that you could use. So I had, I got myself an Apple Mac and it was the only computer system where you could have text and pictures on the same screen. There was a system called HyperCard. And so I had pictures of tourist sites and then text that was about them. And I pursued that for about a year and a half, just get the business up and running. And then my husband was offered a job in Singapore. And so we packed up everything and we moved to Singapore. So we moved to Singapore when my eldest 15 months old. And, and I decided, right, this is where I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to all the law firms in Singapore and tell them to hire me. And it took me about six weeks to realize nobody is going to hire you in Singapore. You have to come with the company. You can't just turn up and get a job. You have to get transferred. I'm still very young at this point, right? I was 24. Uh, so I decided, all right, well, got to do something. So in the land of the blind, the one-eyed woman is queen. And I realized no one knew anything about the Apple Macintosh. And I now did. So I got some business cards printed. Macability, Apple Macintosh Consulting to government, education, and business, and convinced the local Apple store to put the cards on the desk at the cashier counter. And I managed to have contracts for the whole of the two years we were there. 
So that's how I ended up knowing technology, which then ended up the path to me ended up in banking because I ended up teaching technology first at South Bank University when we went back to England. And then I got recruited into City into Credit Suisse to run a technology lab for them. And that was the beginning of my banking career back in 94. Ah, interesting. So you you never were on the counter serving customers? No, I was always in the back office. I was always somewhere in the infrastructure. Mm. And so your roles in banking, so they were always training, teaching, that that kind of thing? Well, the first two years, yeah, the first two years was teaching because that's what I had in my tool belt. While I was doing that, I learned project management because one of the classes that I taught was a project management tool. And then we brought in consultants to teach project management theory. So I learned that theory. I started to apply it. And then when I returned to America in 96, I actually was one of the co-leaders of a project management consulting firm. I bought out the other partner soon after I arrived. And then I had a project management company in America, and my client was mostly Morgan Stanley. And I used to just commute from Washington, D.C. to New York and do project management and organizational change and training type engagements. And that's really where I came into banking was more on that COO, operational project management, change management side. Slowly made my way into risk management, and I spent the last 15 years or so as risk manager. Which slice of that career was the most fun for you? What I'm doing right now is the most fun I've ever had. Now, are you referring to Camp Chateau as opposed to the risk side? Okay, excluding Camp Chateau. Which of my banking jobs was the most fun? I would say when I arrived at Varro Bank, which was my last role before I left banking, uh, that was the most fun I'd had because it was... Varro Bank is a fintech that's sort of national banking charter. It's the only one that has that. And for me, it was such a stretch opportunity because all of the technology was new to me. Everybody was G Suite, for example, and uh, Macs, and I hadn't been on a Mac since Singapore. And so I had to relearn all my tech skills. I had to learn how to really think differently in a fintech environment, but still use all of my banking knowledge. So that was the most fun for me because I could bring everything I knew to the table, but I had to stretch myself every day to learn more. I had a ball. Mm. I can see why that would be really appealing for you. Fantastic. Okay, wonderful. So that brings us up to today. Talk about Camp Chateau. Just explain to our listeners what exactly is it? Because I, I love this idea. I think it's phenomenal. Thank you. We love it too. So Camp Chateau is a all-inclusive summer camp for women. It's in the southwest of France in a region called Kersey. And this is a region of France that I've been going to for years. So I know and love it. And I've always wanted to have a business in France since I was young. We always went to France on holidays. And in the last 10 years of my life, I've become very passionate that women really need spaces to be authentic. I think that this is very important to what we do at Camp Chateau. If I say that in the last 10 years, I've changed my perspective on how women can show up successfully. Because you know, when you first start in these patriarchal industries that we're in, a lot of the guidance is 
how to show up more like a man. This is how you can be successful. Don't be you. Be someone else. And then you can be successful. So don't apologize. Don't be too emotional. Put your hands on your hips in the Superman pose. When they don't hear your idea until a man says it, point out that you said it first. So these are all the things that we're taught. So what I wanted to do is create an environment where actually you can just be you. There is no expectation for you if you come to Camp Chateau, you're not there to build your leadership skills. You're not there to work on your power paradigm or your networking. You're there because you are awesome and you need a break. And so you come to Camp Chateau and we've set it up with bunk rooms. Now, bunk rooms in a chateau, so set expectations. Yes, there's more than one bed in the room, but you are in a beautiful 13th century chateau bedroom uh, with ensuite bathrooms. And then we have activities all day. So you can pick what activities you would like to do. Do you want to do watercoloring or kayaking or horseback riding or journaling or jam making or wine tasting? What is it that you want to do? Or do you want to do nothing? Up to you. You pick what you want to do with your day. And uh, what we're hoping to create is an environment where we have a lot of women coming, all very different diverse backgrounds, and just having a great time. And leaving feeling rejuvenated and the pressure and the mask lifted off. It's supposed to be fun. We acquired the chateau in April last year. They handed over the giant key, literally medieval key the size of my head. It's fantastic. And now we're having the first sessions of camp this summer. Fantastic. Is that May or June? In June, we have June. Founders Weeks. These are people who have invested in Camp Chateau. And then in July, we start with regular camp. It's six days five nights sessions. Is the plan to run it all the year round or to focus in on the summer season? Like what's your vision for the camp? Yeah, we're planning on having summer season only. So we'll do June, July, August and September. Once we have the capacity to fill all of those months, we'll fill them all. This year, right now we're only opened up until the middle of August. If we sell out, we'll add more weeks. I just came back from the chateau this weekend and you would not want to be there in the winter. It is cold. There's no heating. In the I mean, it's there, but if you tried to heat the chateau, it would cost a national budget just to get the heating going. So we will make it a summer only event. And then we rent out the property outside camp season as long as it's warm enough. So for kind of to families, for parties, events, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, last summer, we just Airbnb'd the properties. There's three properties on the 20 acres. There's three swimming pools on the property. It's uh, So you can rent out three properties. This year, we've moved our property manager and his wife into one of those properties. I was One of the reasons I was there last week was to get him settled in, get them settled in. So now we have two properties that can be rented. Now, when we do camp, the chateau will be filled with campers and we have five glamping tents as well. For people who prefer glamping, there's only two people per tent. And then La Grange, which is one of the other large properties, will be for all of our camp counsellors and some of our activities. Fantastic. <clears throat> and we'll share your website. That'll be in the show notes. So people can go and have Great. a look at the pictures and see this beautiful Super. chateau. Yes, absolutely. So you, you talked about founders. 
So I, I love the way that you've gone about funding this. And I think it's so interesting with you having come from a banking background. And I don't know if you've heard, but in other episodes, I've had conversations with some female founders who've had challenges in getting funding. I'm just curious, like, did you go down this route because you knew that that might happen? Or what was your thinking behind it? This... This founding model came out of the conversations we had at the Chateau. I have to tell you, the way that we found this property is that I've dreamt always of owning something in France. And when I was younger, it was a summer camp for kids. And then I had my whole career and it became a summer camp for women. Uh, later, we'll do other inclusive summer camps as well. But I used to get an email every Sunday morning from FrenchProperties.com. So I've been doing a lot to plug them recently, by the way, because I always mention it. Frenchproperties.com, excellent website that sends you information on beautiful properties in France. So every Sunday morning, I would sit, drink my coffee, look at properties.com. This Chateau de Bedway popped up. It's in a valley where my family have a house in that valley. I know it very well. And it was the middle of COVID. Now, I go to England every summer because I usually live in California and Florida. But I go to England every summer to uh, stay with my mom and take on being part caregiver so that my sister's not always the caregiver there. So I was in England for three months, gathered together uh, several of my family members, all my children and their spouses and my granddaughter. And we all went and stayed at Chateau de Bedway in September in 2021 and completely fell in love with it. I mean, the moment, the moment we arrived, we all just stood there with our mouths open saying, this is gorgeous. How do we make this something that other people can experience. And when we first started talking about it, I said, you know, you could make it into a very exclusive resort spa. You absolutely could. And then few people can afford it. There are people who can, but there's only a few of them. We really wanted to do something very different to that and make it available to women generally. And we thought, let's do this in two ways. First of all, let's turn it into a camp so that the price point to attend is affordable. Most people can afford less than 2,000 euros for an all-inclusive vacation. That's something that's not horrible. Spa retreats tend to be $6,000 here in the States. We wanted to stay away from that. Then we thought, all right, how are we going to raise the money to purchase this 2 million euro chateau and 20 acres and all the houses and all the contents and make the changes that need to be made? We decided, well, is there a way that we could offer this to women to see if they would like to come in on it with us? So I just posted on Facebook and I don't have that many Facebook friends. I own a hundred or so. I'm not a big Facebooker. And I just posted and said, hey, here's a picture of a beautiful chateau. Here's the idea, summer camp for women, six days, five nights, lots of activities, food, wine, all included. It's beautiful. What do you think? And the women in my network all said, that sounds amazing. And then when I said, well, would you be interested in funding it? And here's the model we came up with is that you can fund as a founding member for as low as 6,500 euros. And we, we picked that number because a lot of people that we knew from all demographics and all levels of seniority have something like that in their savings account. And so what we said is for the 6,500 euros, we will give you 5% return. And 
free camp. So you get to come to camp every year that you stay invested and we'll give you 5% return. And at the end of three years, if you've decided no more camp, thank you, you can have your principal back. And all we ask is that you give us time to find a new founding member to replace you. So a bit like, you know, a country club membership, but you get it all back and you get free camp and you get to invest in a women-run business. And it was amazing to me how people responded to that. And we also offered equity. And so where we are right now is we have three levels of founding member, 6,500 euros, 10,000 euros, 30,000 euros. They just get different privileges, fundamentally the same, but just a few privileges. And then equity investors. And at this point we have 58 founding members and we have raised a total of a million euros. So we were blown away by that. We would love for it to be 100% owned by women. I think that deserves a little Thank clap. You. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And the fun of it for me is I just meet with women all day long, telling them about what we're doing. And often they say to me, that sounds great. I'm signing up for camp or that sounds amazing. I want to be a founding member. And that's really how we have gathered all of our campers and founding members is just linked in networking and conversations. You said at the beginning that you weren't really a Facebooker and is that a, you're not really a social media person or just was that you weren't really a Facebook person? I, you know, Facebook for me, was a very small group of close friends, more like a travel journal than anything I used for anything else. LinkedIn is where I lived. So when I first took this job and left my role, became CEO, I had about six and a half thousand LinkedIn connections. And so what I found out in LinkedIn is that you can download that as a data dump, which I did. And it tells you the name of the person, who they work for, and what year you were connected. So I took that list, I date ordered it, and I started reaching out one-on-one to people in LinkedIn, to people who had girls' names. Hello, Wendy. I see you and I have been connected since 2006. I recently pivoted from being a chief risk officer at Varro Bank to being CEO at a summer camp for women in the southwest of France. If you'd like to learn more, please let me know. And I just did that all day long. I got through all of my 6,500 and now I have about 8,500 because in the last six months, reaching out to people in other groups, like I look for women's groups, join those, look who's on it, message someone. And I find that I get very high response rate. Now, I assume with your background in project management and things like that, that you have you got like some kind of tracking spreadsheet and you're able to track percentages of everything yeah. that you're doing? So I use monday.com to track my leads. And, and that's where I see what, has this person asked for email information? If they have, have I sent it? Have they asked for a phone call? Have we had the phone call? Have they asked to be a founding member? Have I sent them an agreement? Have they signed the agreement? Have they booked camp? So I have monday.com for that. So it's basically being used like a CRM system. Hmm. And then I have pipeline spreadsheet where I see this is how many people I should reach out to every week uh, because this is the conversion rate we're seeing. And so I just keep going until I hit that number. And I find that I'll have a couple of days where I'll reach out to 200 people and hear nothing back 
And I might think, oh, this isn't really working. And then the next day, 20 of them contact me and say, oh, please send me more information. So I don't know, just trust the process. Just keep doing what works, even when it doesn't look like it's working, because it is. Mm. Yes, I I think one of the things that I found a lot of the time in talking with business owners is that number one, they're often not tracking and so they don't actually really know the numbers. And number two is they're just not doing enough numbers. So they might reach out to 10 people, get no response and go, oh, this doesn't work. And it's, it's just mm-hmm. not enough. You've got to be... Yeah. You've got to be looking at numbers in the hundreds in order to be able to get some kind of statistical validity of what actually does and doesn't work. So, yes, trusting the process and not not giving up too soon. I think particularly when I work with a lot of creative people and what you're talking about for many of those creative people would not feel in flow. But the thing is, for you, it totally made sense to leverage those existing connections. And those connections were really profitable for me in response rate, like the really nice response rate for the people already in my network. As soon as I went outside my network, it started to drop. And what I found is that I needed to go to groups where they would understand that my background was one that would give them confidence in the business. So for example, I find I get a better response rate from groups where there are women who work in risk because they understand what a chief risk officer is. So they know Mm. what I've been doing. They know what that skill set requires. They know I'll have thought through all the things that can go wrong (laughs) and will have put in place mitigants for that because that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. And so they respond at a higher rate, for example, than just, you know, a networking group of women who don't really know anything about banking or what it is that I used to do. Why would we trust you? We don't really even know what you did. That's all for today, folks. Have you subscribed to get more of this juicy goodness for your business? If not, tap that button now. Remember to check the description for links mentioned in this episode. Did you enjoy and find value in this free broadcast? I want you to know that I go so much deeper into the topics discussed with coaching and workshops based on my impact-driven growth model. Want to know how I can help you to double your profits without spending a penny more on marketing ads? Let's arrange to hop on a call to discuss your goals and challenges and I'll show you how. Plus, when you book, I'll send you some free training videos too. Go book now at creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una. That's creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una.